Hello, welcome to Podcasting is Praxis and welcome to our first. It's 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 gonna be a bit too a bit too presumptuous of me to call this a cultural episode, but um something along those lines I think. I am here with Jamie. Alright. And James. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the um, what is a, a cultural highlight for the human race, um, the greatest film of 1977. Some might say the greatest film of all time, Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. It is another 1977 film um, and the series around it, though. Um, so we're going to do Star Wars because we've just had The Rise of Skywalker come out and we have opinions on it and we've now got some... Some opinions about this the series as a whole. I think Jamie, you want to talk about the actual new film a bit first, don't you? Uh, yeah. I mean, should we do a brief recap of of what is a Star War for anyone who's been living under a rock for the last forty two years? Like, I mean, so I'm currently working on a podcast where I'm trying to be really accessible and not put up barriers, but really, really explaining Star Wars to people? <laughs> well, basically what, what happened was in 1977, mankind drove the Colombian Grebe to extinction and that inspired George Lucas to replace it with something that would be equally beloved and popular. I think that about covers it. Yeah, they're about. If people couldn't yeah. tell already that this was going to be a podcast full of hot takes, that definitely confirms it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the original the original trilogy, everyone knows what the original trilogy is. It's about how your dad is a knobhead. Um, the, pre- the prequel trilogy is um, about how George Lucas needs an editor stood behind him at all times. Um, the new films, now they're, they're more varied. There's no sort of overall cohesive theme for the trilogy. The first one is... And I'm convinced purely by accident. Um, the moral of the first of uh, Force Awakens is only trust your fists. Democracy will never help you. Um, and I think J.J. <laughs> Abrams, I think it's it's probably probably fair to say J.J. Abrams stumbled into that by accident. But that's basically the gist of it. Um, the Last Jedi, the moral of The Last Jedi is uh, your past doesn't determine your future and anyone can be a hero. And the... The theme of Rise of Skywalker is no fuck that noise. You have to have magic blood, um, which is something of a surprise that the the son of two big shot Hollywood producers, J. J. Abrams, would insist upon power being hereditary. But here we are. <laughs> so let me get this straight, right? Um, the first of the new set is basically Fight Club Star Wars. The second of the new set is essentially like No Fate, but what we make Star Wars. And the third of a series is Harry Potter Star Wars. Yes, essentially that, yeah. It awesome. kind of gels with the, the, the timelines that we're talking about as well, really, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, that's a take. Um, yeah, the, the last film was bad. Um, it was it was really bad. It made an attempt to... I mean, this is just general moans. This isn't really any sort of moans coming from like a, a particular left-wing perspective, but it was a bit of a... Um, pretend the eighth film didn't happen and here's the film I wanted to be the eighth one and the ninth one and it's meshed into just over one standard film length's time so yeah it was a bit bit on the bit on the frayed end of things yeah it's I think it's very fair to describe um, Rise of Skywalker as full of sound and fury and signifying nothing (laughs) see I can raise the tone when I want to I just choose <laughs> not to. Do you know what? You just put an image in my head, which is we use all the the science of the future 
to bring William Shakespeare into the modern era. And he asks us, you know, in his particular, you know, uh, probably iambic pentameter, how has, you know, the state of my craft progressed in the years since I passed from this mortal coil? And we sit him down in the cinema and we show him <laughs> the rise of Skywalker. Anyone that's looked into the way that Star Wars works or, or has worked is that the original trilogy was kind of lightning in a bottle for the most part. Um, yeah. The mm-hmm. first, you know, the original film um, is a pretty straightforward idea, um, but executed pretty well. It was only executed well because it was absolutely saved in the edit. Yeah. Because um, it was an absolute shit show before that point. The fifth film is. You know, almost universally regarded as the best film, and it's good that it subverts expectations. It follows a bit of a narrative. It builds on the previous film really well, um, and then the sixth one, yeah, a little bit of a nosedive, but yeah, it's still good. Um, but this was all done because, like you said, like there were editors and people who could say no surrounding George Lucas at all times because people knew better than to give him free reign. But then, you know, twenty odd years happened, and everyone forgot that lesson. And I don't the prequel trilogy. I don't think they really forgot that lesson. It's just the the if there's one golden rule above all other rules in Hollywood is that once you've made a certain amount of money, you're allowed to do whatever the fuck you want. Like <laughs> it overrides all common sense and like logical thinking. It's just you know Star Wars at by by the nineties, Star Wars has made like eleven billion dollars or whatever in in the extended universe and and books that explain how lightsabers work. And novels that tell you why, like twelve parsecs, isn't a isn't a, a continuity error or whatever. It isn't actually a goof. It it really the science works like that, and all that sort of stuff. And then you know when he's made that much money, well, you just let him do what he want, don't don't you? Because like if he's made that much money before, surely he must be able to make that. It's what gives us stuff like the Matrix sequels. You know what I mean? Where you, you make the first Matrix and it's it's like a really really good film, but there are people stood behind you going like, well maybe rein it in a little bit. But then once that makes like more money than God, they just go, no, you know what, just just do whatever. I think yeah. there's I think there's an element of truth to that, but I don't know. I think I think that's the lesson of the prequel trilogy. I'm not sure that's quite the lesson of what we're looking at today. To be totally honest, um, cause, yeah. Because here's the thing: the first set of films that Lucas made, he essentially was working from the writings of Joseph Campbell who, for those who don't know, was an anthropologist who essentially studied so widely and deeply into human myth and human history and the cycles of society within the human race that he pulled together this grand narrative that he called The Hero's Journey. And George Lucas um, took his book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, read it and went, oh, I could use this to make the perfect like coming-of-age um, sort of saga and he, he used it to write Star Wars. He used it as like a blueprint, a how-to, by his own admission. Um, and then what saved it was, like you said, he had the editor, in, primarily in the form of his wife, who I think the first mm-hmm, sort of yeah. couple, um, was basically going, no, George, you can't name the primary character Starkiller. You can't give him a robot head. Um, these are bad <laughs> ideas. And no, George, we can't film in a jungle for the very first one. It's not going to work. You're going to be too itchy. We'll do it in a desert instead. Um and so, like, he had that for the first few, but then the prequels was when he basically, everyone went, oh, he's, he's this visionary genius. We should just, we, whatever George says goes. And it turned out that he filmed things exactly like a soap opera with, like, two cameras facing each of the characters and cutting between them all the time. But the new ones 
I don't think it's a case of allowing an individual to run away with a creative vision. I think it's the opposite of that. I think it's the corporatization and over-interference with a narrative uh, being built. And in particular, that extends even to like hiring and casting decisions um, and in decisions on who will be directing and how. I think, um, I, d- I don't know exactly how, how accurate it is, but the story I always heard with the um, the original edit of Star Wars is um, that he, his wife like, you know, said, this, this is really bad and you need to fix it. And he wouldn't trust her word. So he showed his original three-hour like first draft of the film to like Brian De Palma and, and some other directors that he was friends with. And they all told him it was horse shit. And that's when he decided to listen to what his, his wife was telling him and let her like recut it. Um, that sounds familiar. Um, I think something like that happened, but it's all secondhand. So we can never, yeah. I mean, it's not like George Lucas is going to admit it, is it? Probably, probably not. Look, I think before we get into the like takes that you two have, prepared and actually done some like work on we should probably get my shit low effort job that i thought up in the car on the way here out of the yes. way so that it doesn't look bad by com- <laughs> doesn't look as bad by comparison oh um, you overestimate the amount of effort i put into this yeah well i mean you haven't heard this yet but my my big hot take on star wars is that stormtroopers are a metaphor for the american police force and specifically the american police force's brutality because when you hear of what they've done, you know, they've massacred all the Jawas, they've killed Luke's family, they've, like, shot up this place, they've butchered all of these people, oh, they're so scary and everything. As soon as someone points a camera at them, they lose all of their power. <laughs> That's quite good. Yeah, it's not bad, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't immediately hate that take. Like, oh, you look at I don't mean to make light of real-world circumstances, and, you know, so great apologies, um... But there was that that delivery driver, that FedEx driver who got shot to death in America recently. And um, it took like something like 30 cops unloading at his vehicle at once to manage to, I think, hit him twice or something like this. Um, He was a bystander, by the way, which is what makes it absolutely horrific. So that does track with the stormtroopers not being able to shoot anything. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, they were were live on the news at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. And they're primarily white. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> the worst part, the the absolute worst part of that um, FedEx story, I think, was that FedEx thanked the cops. On yeah, Twitter, they did. Yeah, yeah. Which is just peak capitalism, really, isn't it? We thanked Darth Vader for st- sending in the stormtroopers. The farm, uh, really, they were a, a bunch of terrorists, and it just had to be burnt to the ground. The aunt and uncle, well, you know, we all know they were badgins. I mean, yeah, they lost a driver, but at least they got the van back mostly intact. <laughs> oh, love to value human life with numbers. Yeah. Well, that's what happens in yeah. America, because it's not even a real country. It's true. Now that's a take. Mm. <laughs> I will die on this hill. <laughs> in a hail if, of if police American, gunfire. <laughs> yeah, if the American cops here, you totally will. <laughs> So anyway, moving on to the uh, the take. Yeah, the take. Right. So my take is I'll I'll summarise it to you in a little, and then I'll go on to justify it. The tale of Star Wars is about the downfall of a liberal democracy because it doesn't have strong enough scrutiny on people within it, and no controls on immigration. <laughs> Here we go. Right, okay, okay, you got my attention. Let's go. Right, so 
the prequel trilogy sets the scene. You've got the Galactic Republic, an initially seen to be well-meaning liberal democracy, which spans much of the galaxy and exists to bring the rule of law and order to a chaotic galaxy. And it has done for thousands of years. It appears to bring prosperity to worlds which participate in its framework. So you've got Coruscant, a planet-wide metropolis, and Naboo, a green and pleasant paradise. Okay, And then you can contrast that with planets outside of the sphere of influence being lawless and awful like Tatooine which is a desert, and that's important. Sounds like liberalism so far. Let's keep going. Yep, yep. Desert places are bad. Nice built-up places. Good. The Republic's not perfect, though. We enter the story at the beginning of its demise in its own hands. So through a lack of security and holding itself to account, it allows its power to be usurped by a dark and foreign power. This is carried out through not only collusion with dark and foreign powers, but by allowing them to participate in the first place. Enter Senator Sheev Palpatine of the planet Naboo. Now, this isn't really discussed in the films, and I am going to slightly dip out the rest of it is, but this is a little bit of an extra thing. Naboo itself is not one of the core worlds in the Republic, or even in the galaxy. Um, it's outside the typical reach of the Republic, but it's been afforded you know, as much in the way of rights and powers as any of the core worlds would have. Now, that's a bit weird, like, the layout of the Republic's pretty galaxy-central-centric. Um, and Naboo's way, 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 way out close to the rim, um, which is a bit weird, but hey-ho, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, but this failure to examine what should be legitimate concerns of the Republic, you know, people from faraway places, that kind of thing, allows Sheev, who is actually in charge of the dark and foreign powers, but no one knows, to seize power through political chicanery and manipulation. With me so far? Yeah, I don't want to be, but I am. Yeah. <laughs> you should have tried writing this. <laughs> Not only does the Republic fail to apply proper scrutiny to citizenship and rights issues to those from the far outlying systems, they also allow the existence of dangerous ideologies to propagate in their midst. So you've got the Jedi an order of religious extremists who take children from their families at a young age to indoctrinate them and preach purity of thought. Now remember, purity of thought is disallowing the entire concept of the marketplace of ideas, which is important to liberal democracy. I am coming back around. Okay, let's keep going. Right, so they're allowed free reign and even work with the Republic on a regular basis. So, it's flawed, there's issues, I mean, not to mention the fact that they're pacifist, like, that they don't have an army or anything like that, but we'll come to that in a bit. Sheev sets to work mastermind, and I'm, I'm not going to stop calling him Sheev, by the way. She, Palpatine's first name is Sheev, and people who don't know that need to know that. Sheev sets to work masterminding Machiavellian schemes, starting a trade dispute in which he himself is pulling the strings of the aggressors, which involves blockading of his home planet. Um, no doubt to throw off any scent for anyone pot potentially suspicious in future. Um, but this also allows him to become Chancellor of the Republic, seizing power by demonstrating the weakness of his predecessor. So he involves the Jedi in this and leads them to believe there's a dangerous dark and foreign power to confound them, but only enough evidence to bother them specifically and get them involved with things a little more. Um, it doesn't seem to hold any sway with anyone in the Republic. No one seems to care about this problem. 
Um, but then they wouldn't because, as we've seen, they've been quite open to immigration and other things like that. So, you know, problems are going to happen, obviously. He then orchestrates a civil war. He stokes nationalism and disaster capitalism. Um, you know, he, he ensures that things like the banking clan are involved in all this kind of stuff. And he forces generally pacifist... The, the, sorry, he forces the generally pacifist republic to give him emergency powers to create a grand army of the republic, which he conveniently secretly organised years in advance. Now, the world's who turn against the republic may or may not have been generally disloyal to the republic. We don't know, but the evidence seems to show that they generally don't see the republic in a good light. Had there been stronger scrutiny of them previously in their ability to participate in the Republic, they might not have been able to organise against the Republic in the first place. So, I mean, the seeds have been sown for years. This war itself pulls the Jedi, a dangerous religious sect, remember, into the war and in the line of fire of the, the, the Republic's army. Sheev takes the only asset he deems worthy from the Jedi, an inquisitive Jedi Knight named Anakin Skywalker, by showing him an alternate path. Remember, the marketplace of ideas was not allowable within the Jedi Order, so to open that up to him, it was very inviting, as you would fully expect the marketplace of ideas to be. Did you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No. I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. The Jedi are almost completely destroyed by the Grand Army of the Republic and they go into hiding while the war that was orchestrated by Sheev is immediately halted and victory is declared along with the reformation of the once liberal democracy of the Republic into the First Galactic Empire. So that's the prequel trilogy. Okay. That sets the scene and that's the downfall of liberal democracy there. Okay. So uh, can, I, can I pitch in with yeah. a comment already? Yes. So... You could tighten this up. You can make this more effective rhetoric by describing mm. the uh, the Republic as basically being a placeholder for the EU, right? Because you've got all the mm. elements there. Like Naboo is, I don't know, Estonia or Poland or one of the kind of peripheral kind of states which are they're within the EU, but they're not considered to be like core EU in the same way as France, Germany, etc. are. So you kind of got that element. I'm not quite sure what you would describe the Jedi as under this kind of, um, under this description. You could possibly get some Roman Catholic Church shit going, maybe Knights of Malta, the Jedi Knights of Malta, maybe. I don't know. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, my problem was that initially I was going with a kind of American-centric idea and the dark and foreign powers, obviously, was some allusion to to Russia um, and the way that it interferes with the process of democracy, etc. Starts proxy wars. Um, that kind of shit, but yeah, no, that, I like the EU angle, and <laughs> that that's quite good actually. You could even like harness the latent anti-Semitism which runs throughout most, you know, EU countries by talking about how the uh, what are those trade guys called, the ones with the robots, the bankers. I mean, there's there's a total kind of anti, like you know, Jewish kind of angle running through that in its framing. It's just that he uh, he made them kind of. I mean, God, if you ever go back and watch those films, they are so goddamn racist, um, especially yeah. Oh, yeah. With, yeah. with their framing. Um, he basically made them, like, I think he was going for, like, Chinese or, you know, oh, the, yeah, the yeah. Far Orient with the accents. It's really <laughs> fucked up. We rewatched the entire series, um, apart from Solo, because it's shit, uh, <laughs> before we saw Rise of Skywalker. And, um, yeah, Phantom Menace is just so racist. Like... 
the um, do you know what I mean? They, they clearly have coded uh, Watto as as the perfidious Jew. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the for trade, sure. To the point where he's even like clasping his hands and all yeah, that kind of shit. Like the, it's so fucking. The trade blatant. federation guys can't really settle on what kind of like Oriental accent they're trying to do. You know what I mean? It's it's very sort of like just a mis- mishmash of all the worst parts of like 19 i know like george lucas is a huge fan of like 1940s serials and stuff but it's <laughs> it's very like sort of you know what i mean yeah oh, yeah you all asia's just one sort of big homogenous mass of of shifty people mm, sort of thing uh, you and see then, you can ming the merciless to the yeah. to the inevitable conclusion and the less said about jar jar binks the better quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, um, underwater Jamaica was definitely a low point for the entire series. Yeah. Brian, but, Brian Blessed has questions to answer about that, I think. <laughs> um, like, it's also, you know, it's particularly with the Trade Federation, I, I couldn't remember the name. Like, this this opens up questions about, well, what is this Federation and how does it relate to Republic? But we'll push all that actual shit aside. He, mm. There's the whole, they, they have a robot army um, they, they're bringing in new modern tech. There's this whole kind of, you know, there's a, there's an alt-right narrative about how these uh, foreign nations, particularly China, are going to overtake the super powerhouse of the West with their technological advancement because we're no Ooh. longer investing in STEM and all the rest of it. You can totally play up that angle as well, just for maximum shittiness. Oh yeah, you could, oh that's good, that's good. I like this turned into a bit of a workshop on this. That's quite good. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely going to be our most UKIP episode so far, isn't it? <laughs> lots, lots oh, of just... lots of gammon sat at home clapping along, going, "Yes, finally someone's had the sense to put this into words." <laughs> our one Ben Shapiro fan is sitting at home, going, "Oh fucking yeah, great! This is excellent." <laughs> Does Ben Shapiro listen to the podcast? <laughs> Hi Ben, fuck off. Uh, Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna push on, okay, with the rest of the tape because I've I've still got two more, two more trilogies to get through. You'll be thankful to know that these are shorter, um, because they don't. The majority of what I'm talking about here really is in the prequel trilogies. The other two trilogies really just kind of back this up and flesh it out a little bit more. So you've got the original trilogy, okay. Now bear in mind that this this story is told as it's a bad and sad thing. Okay, that the, the liberal democracy has failed itself. Um, that's evident in the very first scene of A New Hope. So you've got an underdog and an oppressor. Okay, so you've got the tiny little fucking blockade runner, and then you've got the massive fuck off oppressive star destroyer coming in behind it. We find out quite initially that there's a, there's a rebel alliance to restore the Republic, and it's acting against the Empire. Now, we already know that the, the Rebel Alliance is made up of two factions within it. So you've got, you know, people who are legitimate elected representatives of the people that, you know, within the Republic. Um, examples of that, like at the end of episode three, you've got Bail Organa and then you've got his adopted daughter, Leia, um, who are, you know, both parts of the the Senate. Um, they're both in the Senate. And not only that, though, you've got extremists and terrorists operating within this rebellion now we see that in Rogue One obviously it's not part of the main story but it kind of is um, you know there's people even you know the, the the more legitimate elected representatives of the people find unsavoury and don't want to engage with the first faction these legitimate elected people seem to call the shots 
but it slowly becomes apparent that they're actually having their power taken away from them or are being radicalised by the other faction within the rebellion. So through involvement with religious extremists, for example, they seek out Obi-Wan Kenobi, a Jedi Knight, and end up with Luke Skywalker, who's trained and indoctrinated again by Jedi throughout this trilogy. The rebels grow bolder and more murderous as it comes through the trilogy. Now to back that up, all right, the first film in the, the original trilogy, they destroy the Death Star. Do you know, or would you like to know, how many people were on the Death Star when that happened? I'm going to regret saying yes, but sure, let's yes. let's go with this. I'm, I'm going to say, before, before you give us the number, I'm going to say probably more than you ever saw in Naboo. Because that's one thing I noticed re-watching the original trilogy is all the scenes of... They talk about how Naboo... Oh, no, they've invaded, they've invaded the city where all the people live and then there's, like, three people running around. Because <laughs> the green screen room was on, on episode one was obviously too small to fit crowds into. Filmed on a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, go on, then. How many people were on the Death Star? There 1.2 million people on the Death Star. And a small band of terrorists. Because, let's face it, the Republic, although now the Empire, is still the de facto government. And as we all know, you need to respect government. 1.2 million people were killed by terrorists. Moving I, through the films... Oh no, hold on, right, like, let's put a oh, yeah, brake okay. on here. Pumping the brakes a second. Mm-hmm. Are we going mm-hmm. all kind of, you know, clerks kind of shit here with uh, how many of them were janitors, how many of them were caterers kind of angle? Is you that absolutely could do. You could do because remember... Non-combatants at military sites do exist. Well, um, if we're going to liberal democracy, if we're going to do the whole Kevin Smith thing, can you give me a minute to go and get my jorts? <laughs> well, this escalates, right? So, episode four, they destroy the first Death Star. One point two million people dead. By episode six, on the Death Star, there was two and a half million. On the Super Star Destroyer that they take out, two hundred eighty thousand. And every Star Destroyer that destroyed 240,000. And they potentially risk, and we never have it confirmed really in any way what happens to them, but they risk the entire extinction of the Ewoks through the destruction of the second Death Star. I don't want to go into that in any great detail, but it's entirely plausible. Um, so that's, that's pretty fucking bad. I mean, don't get me wrong, there was 2 billion people in Alderaan as well. But violence, really, really violence like that against a legitimate government. Mm. Okay, but I'm I'm gonna correct you on on your Ewok point there because as we saw at the end of Rise of Skywalker, the Ewoks are fine. Sorry, in in David's defence, he did say risking. The point isn't the mm. outcome. Obviously, the point is that they were willing to take that risk. Exactly, exactly, and and, and no no government would reasonably carry out an action like that. Obviously, I mean, no, 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 no. Government doesn't risk like genocide of groups of people or anything. Like that. It doesn't happen. But terrorists, absolutely, they totally do. Um, uh, you can't see me, but I'm just sitting with my head in my hands right now. In that <laughs> line. Yeah, I was gonna. I, I mean, government doesn't. Ri- governments don't risk genocide. They always want to make sure they get it, like you know, guaranteed. Yeah, but yeah, but it's rubber stamped. <laughs> That's the difference here. Yeah, there's no respect for the rule of law occurring here. 
it's not about outcomes, it's about process, right? Just Correct. the same as risking the Ewoks was a failure of process, whereas they were fine being, you know, the outcome. The outcome doesn't matter, right? Exactly. So, what you've got here is this rebellion to restore liberal democracy actually being slowly corrupted by the the mere existence of the ideology held by the dark and foreign powers because these dark and foreign powers, you know, Sheev, are actually tied in with the, the ideology of the Jedi themselves. That's just damning, really, like for any sort of we want some sort of rest- restoration of liberal democracy. Can I just interject? I just, I, when you're talking about terrorists and Ewoks and so on, I just had a mental image of Return of the Jedi finishing with this film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen <laughs> fighters of the forest moon of Endor. Oh, I see you've heard my take already then. <laughs> right. The sequel trilogy ends on, you know, ends on a high note for the rebellion, but obviously like we see they've already fell from grace in doing this. They've not went through legitimate action, actions of protest. They've not really tried to engage with the the system and the rule of law. They've just taken it into their own hands and they've they've corrupted themselves and they've destroyed, you know, as far as we're aware at the end of that episode six, they've destroyed Palpatine. Fast forward 30 years into the future. The Republic has been re-established to some degree, but Everyone that was in the Rebel Alliance seems to have been unable to put down their arms and aren't directly participating in the government. They're still in their radicalised little faction. The New Republic itself has failed to learn any lessons about its own security um, and ends up actually being destroyed for the most part. The system of government that they've set up is destroyed in Episode 7 by the, the new replacement for the Death Star. The Rebels now branded as the resistance, yet again seek help from religious extremists. Again, they start to involve the Jedi. They train up another person to act on their behalf, to carry on the ideology. So the resistance in the First Order rehash the previous struggle. They basically do... The film is basically... Episode 7 basically is Episode 4. They basically do it again. The difference this time, though, is that the resistance is almost completely wiped out. That's the only real difference there. As a response to this, the resistance starts to seek even closer bonds with a religious extremist for support and sends one of their own to him for training. That's Ray going to look. The leadership is also previously tied to the religious extremists. Um, Again, the whole layer to look connection, everything else. It's all a very small, cliquey organisation that doesn't seem to have any sort of real accountability or democracy, um, as shown by... In episode 8, when there's no passage of information down the chain, it's all failures of communication, and no one seems to really have any any concept of leadership beyond, I should be the leader. They manage to escape. The few remaining members of the resistance, that is. And after this, it's revealed that the original victory against the dark and foreign powers, which had infiltrated the Republic, had been hollow. Shivri emerges... And this shows that the true enemy of democracy in the first place was not any individual, but ideology itself. Because Sheev, at this point, isn't really a person. It is an ideology. It is the fact that ideology exists. In the final confrontation between the Resistance's own religious extremist and Sheev, there's no chance of victory, right? Until a huge fleet 
of citizenry arrive to assist in the fight. These people have no mandate or judicial authority to carry out warfare and have been radicalised by the resistance because they sent, they sent people out to go and get as many people as they could to join them. And this has to be the final failure of the original purpose to restore liberal democracy because it's possibly unleashed something far worse, the act of participation of the general public at large. So you're chronicling mm-hmm. via, the interse- via the intercession of religious extremism, you're chronicling mm-hmm. the fall of liberal democracy due to its mm-hmm. own internal contradictions, the rise yes. of fascism, and mm-hmm. then the dismantlement of fascism giving way to just mob rule and anarchy. Yes. So it's a hopeful narrative after all. <laughs> Largely, yes. Um, it's, it's very much on the accelerationist track, but yes. Um, even though, you know, the, the, the dark take. and foreign power, yeah, that appears to have been vanquished, there's no explanation given or any sign at the end that liberal democracy is going to return because at the end of the day, everyone has been radicalised. No one sits in the centre anymore. Everyone has taken apart. Everyone has made some sort of action. And as far as liberal democracy goes, that's bad. And that is the take. I noticed you glossed over how the return of the, this, what is it, they called it the New Order or some shit like this? First um, Order. First Order, there we go, yeah, sure. How that one of their initial acts is to destroy all the core worlds, like, you know, take out the Corsican and all the others. Um, f- forget the mechanics of how and all the rest mm. of that kind of shit. Like, th- there's something in there for targeting the, uh, the central nations of this kind of, um, like, EU-like state that's been kind of fledgling re-established. Something, something metaphor, giant lasers striking into the hearts of planets, uh, immigration, I don't know. Mm. Mm. Again, like I said, they didn't have, they didn't learn the lessons. There were no controls on immigration. There weren't any legitimate concerns being actioned. And that's, hate, that's why the Republic fell. I hate that I know this, but the um, the planet you see get blown up in Force Awakens, it, it isn't Coruscant. It's not, no. It's, it's um, oh, so I, I, well, I maybe, maybe know this was a bit of a strong phrase but it's something else i can't remember the exact name of it something prime it's um uh, out in myself here it's chandrilla which is the home world of mon mothma the tall ginger person that um helps with the the rebel alliance and is present in return of the jedi and in rogue one nerds yep no okay right um there's also i mean it's kind of it's striking to imagine that if only Ed Miliband had been Chancellor during the years of the uh, the original prequel trilogy, that all of this could have been avoided. It's true. All you needed was some red space mugs and all of this could have been avoided. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if only they had tacked centre-right, this would all have been, you know, a moot point. Well, that is a hell of a take, David. That is, uh, yeah, Wow. I'm, I'm I'm a little scared for your your psyche now that you're able to just sit and write that up. Yeah, no one no one can deny that the Sith never rose to power under Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, do you think I should submit this to the Guardian and see if they'll print it? Yeah, yeah. Why not? 
<laughs> they, they print worse on a regular basis. If you could do the same thing with Harry Potter, they'd definitely print it. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a narrative. It, and you know what? It sort of holds together in a couple of places. A bit sugarly, but... Yeah, I can totally... I can actually envision, envision some right-wing shitlord sitting on, like, Stormfront or something, earnestly <laughs> typing his thesis on how essentially, you know, Star Wars is a saga of racial purity being diluted and all this kind of shit, and hitting more or less the same notes on the way. I, I probably should check myself in somewhere and, you know, get the head looked at, because, yeah. I, I think we <laughs> as, definitely... As, as George Lucas would say, I may have gone a bit far in some places. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's definitely got to be a struggle session for, you, for both you and George Lucas <laughs> at some point. <laughs> oh, right. That's my shit take. Now, what is not necessarily your shit take, but what what is your take? Well, I, I got a shit take, but give me a little bit with this, okay? So, if I were to tell you that actually I agree with some of the points that both of you have raised, and that I would go further, I would describe how the narrative of Star Wars is not best analysed as what sequence of events it's necessarily attempting to parallel, but what function it serves in the culture of America and the broader, I say, you know, white Western nations that, you know, pretty much dominate our planet today. If I was to say that, the best way to look at Star Wars is to look at their cultural effect and what it is they aim to do sociologically and politically. You'd probably think that's a bit kind of highbrow, but it leads to such beautiful takes as the Ewoks of Endor are about reclaiming America's defeat in Vietnam as a source of cultural pride by appropriating the subaltern perspective of the natives, opposing an evil imperial invading force, and explicitly codifying them as proxies in a war of greater powers. How's that for a hot take? That's pretty good. It is, yeah. It is um, mild to hot. Well, here's the thing. Star Wars... As a, as a cultural force, you kind of have to look at it not in the order that the narrative presupposes, where it says, oh, we're going to do these prequels and they fit in before. No, no, they should be looked at in the order of their emergence in actual temporal time. So you've got, you know, episodes four, five, six, then one, two, three, then seven, eight, nine. And if you look at them from this perspective, you start to be able to kind of pull out some interesting tidbits. Like I just mentioned the Ewoks of Endor. And let's kind of dig into this a bit. I mean, can I just say, I have actually heard people say um, Star Wars as a metaphor for the Vietnam War mm-hmm, before, mm-hmm. but uh, referring to episode four, um, because that is like, you know, the the Empire is supremely technologically advanced and all-powerful, and they get fucked up by a bunch of, like, you know, just people with, with barely any tech, and they just turn up and, and fuck them over because of, the, of the hubris. You know, evacuate in our moment of triumph, etc. Um, what? Well, but yeah, your, your Ewoks point is more intel- a more intelligent version of that. Well, no, because see, that's actually true as well. So to to kind of, I I find the Ewoks point like this kind of is the easiest way to to expound upon it and to show the the kind of direct influences. Because here we have a group of tribal natives who are codified as being savage and primitive, who resist, you know, um, they exist within a a jungle planet and they're drawn in as the basis of a proxy conflict between these greater powers, so to speak. Um, They are explicitly um, 
under the influence and impetus of this rebel alliance, and they're attacking an imperial uh, occupying and invading force, um, and are ultimately successful in taking it down, right? And if you take a step back, that is literally the narrative that America had um, and had to contend with over the course of Vietnam, because their entire premise for going into Vietnam was that Vietnam's flirtations with communism were very much a sign that they were under the influence of Moscow, and thus the, the USSR had turned this um, this jungle country into a proxy uh, conflict space. And so this was the whole reason we have to go in to liberate, if you will, Vietnam from the, the dread influence of uh, the USSR. Except promptly Vietnam kicked America's ass. Uh, it w was at great cost and... You know, no one was very happy by the end of it, but ultimately the imperial power was ejected. George Lucas, and this blows many people's minds when they realise, he explicitly talked to, I think it was um, Cameron, about how he intended this to be a Vietnam parallel. And in fact, in the uh, special edition DVD commentary of uh, Return of a Jedi. Yes, I, I'm, I'm also a nerd. Deep cut uh, seal. Yeah, he, he explicitly goes into this. He talks about how the jungle setting, how the warfare tactics used by the Ewoks, they were all meant to be essentially um, uh, a pastiche on the, the conflict used by the Viet Cong and the, the, you know, the destruction of American forces as they went deeper and deeper into those jungles. And the overbearing kind of powers that America you know, brought in retaliation and the indiscriminate massacring, which is why you've got those scenes of, oh no, the poor Ewoks, they've all been killed and, you know, they're up against this superior firepower that's just uh, blazing through the forest. You know, it's all it's all very sad. What essentially he was doing is he was evoking a kind of sympathy with that perspective. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I am not going to say that George Lucas is intelligent enough to set out at the beginning of a series intending... <laughs> right, to help America reappropriate its failures within its national psyche to maintain its core kind of ego perspective of being like um, a superior, dominant, successful, good power. I don't think he set out to do this, but I think the fact that functionally his works had this effect, the original trilogy in particular, we'll get to the others in a minute, I think these are what allowed him to rise to great success. Because you very much could, right, take the original A New Hope and you could slap right on the end of it, this film is dedicated to the brave fighters of the Mujahideen, <laughs> and it would totally fit. And even bin Laden and many of his subordinates in Afghanistan and in, you know, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, they straight up would say to Americans after captured, you know, you guys are the evil empire. Like, they actually would invoke that cultural symbolism because they'd all seen the same movies at this point. It's just they had more, shall we say, historically accurately identified America as the empire and these plucky resistance fighters as being more directly paralleled in the, uh, the resistance and in the mm -hmm. rebellion. I genuinely thought for a second there you were going to say they'd all seen the same films except they'd had the sense to ban them. <laughs> well, the thing is, they, they they sort of didn't really. I mean, they, um, the, the films have been widespread across the entire planet. And kind of the reason it's, it's essentially worked is what Star Wars, the original trilogy, as I said, we'll get to the others in a minute. What the original trilogy does 
is it rehabilitates America in the psyche of, you know, the, the, the American and Western viewers by basically taking the horrible actions of America and externalizing them and saying, look, all this shit that we do day to day, you know, massacring, uh, you know, farmers in desert countries, um, rolling over natives, all this kind of horrible, repressive, kind of totalitarian shit, um, all this imperium, that's the bad guys of this, this narrative. And look, we're literally going to give you a new set of plucky resistance fighter heroes who are on the side of good or on the side of justice. And we are going to allow you to appropriate them as your heroes. Because how many people, right, how many people do you genuinely know who say stupid shit? And it is stupid, but they say shit like, oh, Luke Skywalker is my hero, or Han Solo, he's a badass. He's like, it's a kind of, they are literally providing these figures to basically go, look, this is, this is what America's about. America's all about these things. And it's a, it's a neat kind of intellectual trick where it is allowing the individual who like really buys into Star Wars to otherize all the things that America actually does and identify with this constructed hero figure, which really has has no place in the reality of America. And it's, it's really quite sophisticated because Luke Skywalker, what is he? He is a, a country boy from a Midwestern state who dreams of making it big and gets sucked into a grand adventure. He is a farmer. You know, it's, it's very much codified in a way that you can identify him as being an all-American hero. And by contrast, you then, the the father sort of son kind of element you've got in the original trilogy, what is that but saying, look, look, the new generation can reject the horrible actions and, and deny their participation in them. Like, this is why when Vader reveals, look, I am your father, you know, Luke rejects it entirely and would rather die than join with him. In that moment, you have this kind of, this rejection of the heritage of empire and this explicit identification with a hero figure, which is undeniably American in its kind of community, cultural kind of trappings, but in its kind of material action and in its perspective is based more in the kind of subaltern periphery. It's about taking that subaltern perspective that deep in our hearts we kind of know is right. We know that the invasion of Vietnam was wrong. We know that all the imperial bullshit that America and the broader West do is wrong. It's about saying, well, we may come from that. We may be descended from that, but we don't buy into that. No, we identify with these hero figures who instead are more on the side of good. Yeah, yeah. And I would I would say that the um, the image of Luke Skywalker as the all-American hero succinctly answers the question of why with all the, the different edits George Lucas has made to the original trilogy over the years he's never removed the stuff where Luke tries to fuck his sister <laughs> I mean you joke you joke but there is a, a, one of the things we kind of have to contend with in society and so I'm going to go a little bit deep here but please bear with me like everyone knows that in the online pornography community suddenly all this um Basically, incestual porn has become a really major thing, and everyone is a bit squicked out by it. And they've always like everyone's kind of struggled to try and kind of understand why is this why is this such a big deal. And it actually does tie into basically American predilections and 
you know, because it's undeniable there are a lot of people that are apparently turned on by this far more than we really are comfortable with. But if you ask people individually, they would, of course, all reject it. And you've got to kind of ask the question, well, well, why? Why does this step brother sister narrative why does this seem to have such why does this seem to have such purchase when people are going to view porn and by extension why is that a subtext within star wars which then is kind of safely kind of put aside and it's to do is to do with kind of family dynamics and it's to do with essentially the nature of what all storytelling like this is and pornography falls under this category because let's take a moment right when you really get into the nuts and bolts of sex as communication, as part of relationships, sex is intimate. Sex is personal. When you fuck someone, it involves a kind of lowering of your guard. It involves you actually kind of seeing them as another human being and being seen in return. But in the Western society we live in, we have this kind of concept of masculinity that says, no, you, you can't do this. Like, you've got to... Feelings are gay. And you've, you, we've all heard, we've seen online, if you browse any kind of, you know, website where there's teenagers are talking, there's this, this kind of, like, faux machismo that goes on where they, they, almost to the point of, like, parody, talk about how things like, oh, having a girlfriend is totally gay. You should just be a player. All this kind of stuff. Like, essentially, it's about that kind of toxic element of masculinity overriding... Um, your kind of human connection to other and creating this kind of construct of sexual conquest. If you then look at its pornography, if you were to go into pornography and look at it as being hyper, you know, as being real, it becomes intensely uncomfortable because you're essentially prying into the personal interaction of two other people. And this is why pornography has to have ludicrous kind of fairy tale, and I mean fairy tale story kind of, you know, it's, it exists in a kind of fairy tale logic. They've got to have these premises at the start and end to suspend the kind of normal logic by which you'd look at a thing. But it's still kind of, in essence, that suspension has to have a kind of remit of a real. It has to be a little bit plausible enough to allow people to really kind of get into it, but not too plausible as to actually kind of deeply kind of uh, threaten the distance that's necessary to treat sex as a commodity. And so, to bring this around and kind of back to Star Wars, finally, sorry for that diversion, like, in America, the whole incestual nature of a family, the tensions and, and all the rest of it that kind of lie there, it does underlie a certain section of the American psyche where there's this construct of masculinity that has to kind of be got around. And who can you let yourself your guard down by? Who can act as the fulfillment and receptacle of a lot of these kind of internalized desires, but family members who already know you, who already regard you? And it is like that is an actual thing that if you go deep into any kind of sociological study of sex, they're like, it, it's it's there. It's, you know, when, when Kinsey did a whole bunch of studies, um, one of the things that came up is that, you know, there's there's a significant component of kind of hang-ups around, you know, mothers and fathers. We've got, like, the Oedipus complex, the uh, Electra complex. All of that is kind of there. And so you laugh, but actually the integration of that subplot within Star Wars makes it, to an extent, more American. It actually goes, look, there are these tensions that many, you know, people have within them that are completely sublimated. And we're going to acknowledge them, but we're going to put them safely aside because as soon as Luke is informed that it's his sister that he's kissed, suddenly all of that gets pushed away and it becomes a background. And thus it's a safe reframing of, oh no, it's, it's the intimacy of brother and sister. 
And again, like this is kind of shit that sounds ludicrous on the surface, but when you actually kind of dig into it and you read the kind of text, you learn some really kind of horrifying things. And it all comes down to this kind of imperial idea of commodification and possession. I'm, I'm just impressed that Alistair isn't even on this podcast and we've managed to end up adjacent to Pornhub incest stuff again. <laughs> My stepsister takes advantage of me while I'm stuck in a back to tank. Yeah, can't we have one podcast that doesn't end in us bringing up that fucking washing machine? <laughs> yeah, but that, that's the joke, isn't it? Because that what literally what you just said there, David, that could very well be like a Pornhub plot, and yet it's right there in the middle of Star Wars. And the reason it's there is because Star Wars is essentially the vehicle for taking all of these horrible, ego-threatening kind of things like, oh, my sister's a bit hot, oh, I shouldn't think that. It's about taking these things, oh, I'm part of a murderous empire that goes out and ransacks the world. Um, it's about taking these things and giving the individual distance so that they don't mm. have to identify with them. And so that's why, I mean, you know, God help me, I know that is a really rough one to actually go into, but this is the cultural function of Star Wars. And its evolution over time um, throughout the series um, has been about taking the de jure psychic weights of a day and pushing them aside. So the original trilogy is very much about Vietnam. It's kind of brushing up against kind of, you know, proxy conflicts in the Middle East. And it's, you know, about pushing them away and saying that you don't have to be part of it. The prequel trilogy is about, like, it's about 9-11. It's about the rise of Bush. It's about the change, the noticeable change in American foreign policy and in people's position with it. Like George Lucas himself has said that, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, the fall of the Senate and the rise of Palpatine is an, uh, it was an analogy to the imperial presidency at the time it was being produced. And what is that but saying to liberals, essentially, look, and saying to common American liberals, the ones who just internalise it and don't think they're political, is saying, look, it may be that the Republic seems like it's going to shit right now, but don't worry, remember, the resistance is going to come along and fix it all one day. This is just now the darkness. This is all set dressing. Luke Skywalker is still to come, even though we're seeing Darth Vader rising right now, you know? Yeah. And that's why the uh, the prequels are kind of a bit kind of shit, because they're a bit too on the nose. And unfortunately, the story they're telling doesn't it doesn't actually hold water and track with what people were actually experiencing. And to try and, you know, to try and simplify the tensions of the rise of imperial presidency and the re-engagement in the Middle East in the wake of 9-11 and all the horrors of that, to try and reinterpret it in such a way that it's saying, look, you're still part of this thing, but it's not really representative of you. It doesn't really work. You need a rebellion. You need something that's explicitly separate from that political whole to be able to have that distancing. Yeah, I think I think they're shit because of everything you just said, and also because they look like fucking reboot. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's many criticisms. I'm just given the kind of you know psychology based kind of cultural criticism, which which kind of it leads us into the new trilogy as well. There's one thing that underlies America. Um, there's a myth, and it's been well commented on by others in sociology. Um, there's this myth of rejuvenating violence. There's this idea that violence is a force that defines us and purifies us and makes us better that conflict is the vehicle and engine for regeneration essentially and it's an old myth and you watch any action flick and it's at work right there you know it's basically saying look things might be shit you might be a shit person but through war through conflict through organized violence through good versus evil 
you can emerge renewed and the body politic can emerge renewed and revitalized. And that, that narrative is central to understanding Star Wars and it really comes to the fore in these new movies that have been kind of brought up because if you look at the, the weight that hangs over the West and America today, it's not, oh, we've just lost this, this uh, proxy conflict in Vietnam and we're having these proxy conflicts in the Middle East that aren't going well. It's not that we, we've got a bloody nose and we're having to reevaluate our position in the world. It's not that. And it's not, oh, you know, we've got, it seems that our governments are turning a bit fash and it seems that all the things that we could safely distance in the past are now we're having to, to, we're being forced to take ownership in and we need some way to kind of create, to, to try and salvage ourselves and create distance from that. It's not that either. The, I would say that the thing that really defines the, the new trilogy today is the fact that societally, our institutions have lost their steam. Everything is, you know, it just seems like everything's shit and it's going to continue to be shit and there's nothing that can be done. Things are just gradually getting worse and there's no hope for regeneration or renewal. This is the kind of, this is the preoccupation and weight that hangs over everyone. And so what the new trilogy attempts to do is rather than create a distance from the problems of a day, how do you, how do you create a distance between malaise and cultural uh, ennui? You can't easily do that. All you can do is return to, to try and evoke a nostalgia of times past when there was hope, when there was optimism. And that's why the very first episode of a new trilogy is so well liked, because it's, look, remember this thing from the past? It's why nostalgia has been a big kick in culture recently, generally. It's um, it's because it's going, look, remember remember younger times when there seemed to be hope? Well, here it is, we, we could have that again. Um, but the reason it also doesn't work and the reason it feels tired is because it's just retreading old ground and it's not giving a new kind of cultural narrative. And the one movie that does try and say, look, we can do something new, we can be different, the middle movie, is very roundly hated because it tries to split the difference. I mean, let's think about it. In that in that scene where Ray and Kyle Ren, they like kill off Snoke, which can I just say is a brilliant name for a villain. That really puts the fear in you, doesn't it? Snoke. It's like yeah. It does fantastic. sound like it does sound like the evolution of a lesser known Pokemon. Does doesn't it? It's just like <laughs> oh god, I've got the terror in me. Snoke is coming, right? I mean, remember they did they did give Palpatine a first name and they they made it Sheev. Oh, I'm sure Snoke has a first name. Oh it, please, it, it feels very Lucas. I've got to say that, and in to that the way, Google it is reveal. a. Yeah, it is. I think it's the most authentic part of a new trilogy, to be totally honest. <laughs> let's not let's not forget that like one of the names of a character he doesn't get a name in the film, but he is named the guy in episode two who tries to sell Obi Wan the Death Sticks. His name, his canon Star Wars name, is Elan Sleesbagano. Yeah, amazing. Apparently, um, apparently, he's Evandor Snoke. Which sounds like a bottled water. <laughs> are you but, thirsty? I'd, would you like? Are you out on the run and you need a, a, a drink of refreshment? Try new uh, Snoke branded Evian. Like fucking hell! I mean, it, it, I started. I started this. This all this shit off talking about the Colombian grebe, and it honestly would not surprise me if you told me one of the, the one of the fucking guys in the cantina in in uh, a New Hope was called Colombian Grebe. It would just, you know, make perfect sense, really, wouldn't it? 
yeah, when they said that they had a little bit of consultation with Lucas on the first film, you can definitely you can definitely see it. But anyway, so right, so to bring it back on, so Ray and Kylo Ren or Ben Solo, whatever the fuck you want to call that whiny guy, they're in the throne room. I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I want to call that guy is I want to see um I went to see Force Awakens um, and sat in the cinema and he, they introduced him as Kylo Ren and my brain immediately went Barlow Ken. And that is literally <laughs> all I've been able to fucking call him for like four years now. Just sat there the whole the whole way through that film with a, a voice in the back of my mind going Barlow Ken, Barlow Ken, Barlow Ken. Jamie, your brain is a treasure. Okay, so Barlow Ken. <laughs> Right, so he's in the throne room with Rey. They murder Snoke and like kill his guards, etc. And the rebels are in the process of being destroyed. And he turns around and he makes a case for forget everything that's come before. Let's make a clean break, and we can bring order. We can we can make a new existence. Let's let's do something new. Let's not just fall into the same tired trajectory of the past. Right. Which is which is great. It's it's like that is essentially one of the possible solutions to malaise and ennui within society is to say, look, we need to actually fundamentally re-examine all these structures and all these narratives under which we live and try and produce something new. But you can't really do that in a Star Wars film, can you? Because that means you need to let go of a hell of a lot of stuff and you need to reject your old heroes. And people are kind of unwilling to do that. And so, you know, the film itself doesn't do it. It just kind of, it recasts it as being, oh, look, he is just, it's just a Sith kind of ploy kind of thing. He's inviting her over to the dark side, all this kind of shit. But in the moment, that's not clear at all. In fact, he's just Mm. murdered a whole bunch of people like that. In that moment, there's the potential for the Star Wars saga to try and go in a different direction, but it can't. It's held back by its own gravity of its past. It can't reject what has gone before. And that, if you will, is the whole problem of a new trilogy, it's the cultural weight of all the things we have accruing behind us is catching up and the use of this kind of fiction that tries to say, look, yes, these things exist, but they are otherized, they're not you. You might be part of a murderous Imperium that goes out and does these terrible things, but that's not who you are. It's not who your heroes are. That is increasingly not holding water. And so the best it can do is kind of go, look, just take your mind back, put yourself back to when you were younger, when these narratives seemed more credible, right? You like that, don't you? And people nod along and go, yes, but it's ultimately a hollow experience. You can't you can't reclaim that space because you're no longer that person and the context has changed. And this is why it all falls apart. And it's also why, it's like, if you will, there's this concept in psychology um, called, now what's it called? It's called like a, an extinction burst, right? And it's this idea that if you have a behaviour or a pattern or a habit you're trying to break, you might be successful for a time, but then it will come back with a vengeance and it will be really, really hard to ignore. And the reason for this is because essentially you're trained in a behaviour, you're used to a behaviour extracting particular outcomes. When you try and change that behaviour, it takes effort to kind of repress it. And eventually in like an attempt to avoid it being kind of extincted, it comes back and it rages to the fore and tries to hit the same buttons again and again to try and get the same reward as it used to. The third instalment, this terrible one that's just happened, is exactly that. Because the second one has said, look, we could just not do this. We could tell new stories. We could take a new direction. We could take ownership of our past and then do something new with it. 
go in a different direction. But people weren't willing to do that. And so instead, we've got this this greatest hits, you know, the return of Sheev and all the rest of it comes roaring to the fore. And that's why there's this massive retcon, because it's like, oh, actually, you know, she's uh, Sheev's granddaughter, is it? Rather mm-hmm. than being just a nobody. The idea that actually, oh, maybe maybe the heroes of the past aren't as all-encompassing as we've imagined them to be. Maybe it doesn't matter if you're descended from a hero or not. That's almost toxic, because there's this contradiction. You're part of this horrible, murderous thing, but you can't ever escape the weight of it. And part of you benefits from it as well. So how do you thread that needle? How do you reconcile these differences? And Star Wars as a vehicle fundamentally can't. And so instead, it beats the drum of this myth of rejuvenating violence, this idea that there will be a big conflict and a big showdown between good and evil, and it will ultimately result in the body politic being renewed and re-emerging. And it might take time. It might be disguised. It might involve Obi-Wan Kenobi going into the desert and, you know, giving young look over to someone else. It might, you know, be a promise of the future. But don't worry, if you just fight, conflict is itself an emancipating force rather than something that, as it does in reality, something that degrades and destroys and ultimately lessens its participants. And that's the contradiction of it. That is the fundamental issue with Star Wars. Star Wars as a cultural vehicle exists to try and give people who are part of this polity, which sits at odds with their concept of self, a mechanism by which they can deny its cultural you know, weight and impact and their participation in it. And it's gradually been running out of steam because it's becoming harder and harder to deny. And if I've not convinced you with that, I'm going to ask you one question, one serious question. Recently, Suleimani in Iran was just assassinated. And despite attempts of others to the contrary to say he wasn't well-liked, he there's been an outpouring of, 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 of support and, and grief within Iran. Um, and like, you know, over a million people attended and, and marched in his kind of funeral events. That is a major cultural hero within Iran. Here's my question to you. Do, can you name one figure in America who has a similar kind of cultural status, who could call upon that same level of cultural kind of output. Who is the American hero to match Suleimani? SpongeBob SquarePants. Exactly. <laughs> a fictional character. It's Luke Skywalker. It's SpongeBob SquarePants. It's Tony the Tiger. It's all these mythological figures. It's, um, what is it? Uh, Seven oh, oh, from... All right, hold, hold on. I'm, I'm on board with everything else you've said so far this episode, but I'm not having Tony the Tiger as a mythological figure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, here's the thing, right? What is... There's two kinds of myth. There's, 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 like, the traditional ancient myth, and then there's kind of living cultural myth. And living cultural myth is the domain of memes, basically. It's the stories we share and circulate with each other. Tony the Tiger totally is part of that. You just need to go to the furry community to see what they do with that guy. No, I mean, I, I, I said, I, I jumped in there and I realised I went off too early because, like, you know, if America does have any mythological heroes, heroes in the 21st century, a serial mascot would definitely be one of them. I mean, it would. And it's, it's, it's hilarious and sad at the same time. But Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, Leia Organa Solo, um, Han Solo, all of these... These are the American heroes because there are no good American heroes people can put themselves behind. And one of the griefs of Why else Europe, would you have Kylo Ren on packets of oranges or whatever shit? Well, there you go, exactly. It's, again, it's a, it's a branding mascot has become a hero, essentially. 
like it's the hero is the brand is the mascot that is the american construct of cultural heroism and when there have not been cultural heroes in america they've been very rare and the grief of the modern era is the exposure of american cultural heroes actually just being full of shit like bill cosby for example and a whole variety of others america is definitely milkshake duck the nation (laughs) that's the thing American heroes fundamentally are because to be a hero in the American system of horrors is fundamentally to be a participant in it and so there will be there there will be lurking horrors the dark kind of reflection of what is publicly put forward the the rare exceptions to this topic are people like um, Mr. Rogers Uh, Mr. Rogers is an American beloved hero Um, but he's exactly beloved because he is the antithesis of everything America stands to be. And that's why, by the way, Fox News did him dirty the second he died, because uh, if you follow through the philosophy of Fred Rogers, you have to dismantle Imperium. And so if you have a hero who is compatible with Imperium, he is either a neat rhetorical trick of fiction, like Luke Skywalker, or he's a Kevin Spacey, a Bill Cosby, um, a Gwyneth Paltrow, or any of these other people who, when you dig into them... Uh, he's hell. an Elon Musk. He's That's an Elon a, Musk. A huge slam on Gwyneth Paltrow out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, well, okay, I mean, so she's, the that one... She's a knobhead, I'll grant you that, like, but I don't think you mention her in the same breath as Cosby and fucking Spacey. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, let me... For the, for the purposes of our lawyers on this podcast, allow me to reiterate that I am in no way insinuating that Gwyneth Paltrow is a sex offender. Right. What I was actually referring to is she owns this company called uh, Goop or Jupe, depending on how you try to pronounce it. And it just had to settle like for $10 million out of court because they produced these um, these products. I'll talk about this loosely. that ended up with a number of women becoming very, very ill because they made medical claims about them, which were fundamentally untrue. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, she's, she's an absolute knobhead. Like, I don't, don't dispute that. I just think she's in a different league to the other yeah. two people. To be honest, I probably should have led with that one and kind of, you know, ratcheted it up rather than had to drop off at the end. But it's all coming off the cuff. But this is my point, though. It's like, fundamentally, you either have these heroes who are implicit in Imperium and thus they are subject to the same contradictions, or they're opposed to Imperium, in which case the Imperium can't really stand them, can't allow them kind of in. And the only way to reconcile this is to essentially have them be fictional because then they can be perfect. Then they can through a rhetorical shifting of focus, be emblematic of all the things that you think are good, etc., but still be identified with the Imperium. They're literally fiction. They can't exist for a fantasy. So I think, are, are we are we done with Star Wars hot takes? Should we just... Because um, we haven't... I don't think we've got comment or commentary yet, have we? No, there's no comment or commentary. It's more, more just a comment on our part, really, is that we spent the whole episode talking about narrative and... You know what, what? What is the narratives, and what could they be? I've fucking gave you the the unifying centrist theory of Star Wars, yeah. um, and we've obviously had the Vietnam War um, take, and then you know lots of good background there um, on you know splitting the trilogies. What do they tell? Um, forgiveness of imperialism, all that kind of stuff. Like the thing is, these are these are big films. Like <laughs> everybody almost has seen fucking Star Wars to some degree. Um, they've seen some part of it. If they, if not, they're aware of it through cultural osmosis. Everyone has an idea of what it is. That means that these these narratives and the threads that they tell are out there and widely seen. Narratives are powerful. Narratives are dangerous. 
um, if if they're not if they're not the right narratives because they serve purposes in under a capitalist system. Those who have the money and the push can make sure that their narratives are are held, and I th- it's it's important that we point that out. Um, I don't know if James, you want to go into a little more kind of detail there, but I think we've already covered a lot of that anyway. Really, it's more just kind of. Yeah, I guess like the proof is in observing it in action, isn't it? Because um, okay, mm-hmm. Star Wars isn't really the main touchstone, but if you read the journals on the the published kind of you know um, biographies, the uh, autobiographies of the people who served in the Obama White House, they talk a lot about the West Wing. They talk about how that was a great mm. inspiration to them. And the West Wing is is fantasy. It is a kind of propaganda. It's a kind of liberalism is supreme. And other podcasts have gone into detail on hmm. why it's shit and terrible. And so we're not going to tread that ground. But there is an example of a narrative has literally shaped the thing that it supposedly is talking about by changing how people place themselves within that thing. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Harry Potter, which I think is actually <laughs> worth touching on in itself, but we're not going to go into it. There is a reason that all these fucking centrist melts talk about, you know, they talk about their political stance and they go, oh yeah, and I'm a total Ravenclaw, you know? There's a reason they see it through this kind of framing. It's because these narratives, in many ways, are the contextualization that give rise to political expression. And there can be very big kind of sweeping mythological archetypal narratives, which is what Star Wars trends towards, Mm. or they can be much more kind of niche narratives um, much more specific, which is kind of what the, the West Wing and, and others kind of do. They talk about what is politics within America rather than what does it mean to be American. Yeah, I and, think the West Wing and President Barnowl or whatever he's called, I haven't seen the West Wing, um, I think he is to the Obama White House as Jack Bauer was to the Bush White House. Absolutely, 100%. And so, yeah, these stories matter. It's not that... It's not that stories are inherently political. It's rather that stories are inherently psychological and the psychology of the individual uh, determines their politics. And stories are inherently sociological and the sociological position of an individual, how they relate to society, changes how they relate to their politics. And the combination of these things give rise to political movements. And that's why these these grand narratives can, can... produce such obsession is because they speak to people personally and help them place themselves within this world, which is often terrifying, which is often like the Bush years, for example, which is often like the Trump White House now today, which is often like, God help us with Boris Johnson primarial stewardship. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I think we've covered a lot of good ground today. Uh, one thing that I meant to correct you on a while ago was you said that um, the last Jedi was roundly hated, and I don't think that's um, an accurate description. I think it was it well loudly hated. I think by a minority <laughs> yeah. of people, um, but I, I think overall it's generally people think. I think there's a lot of people who are sort of generally uncritical of of the things they watch thought it was good, and a lot of people really admired it for for doing something relatively unexpected with Star Wars. And rejecting you know the whole sort of um, the whole idea that that everything has to have like a, an extended universe novel written about it, which is very important. And you know, it's <laughs> like who who is Snoke? What's his backstory? Don't care. He's dead. Who who were his parents? Oh fuck off! It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? That sort of thing was yeah. a, was a, a breath yeah. of fresh air for Star Wars, and a, and a lot of people 
appreciated that, even though it properly pissed off nerds. Like, (laughs) you're right. And I should clarify that when I talk about it being roundly hated, again, I'm looking at the thing by its function. I'm doing a kind of a teleological kind of reading of this. And it's hated in the sense that it was sufficiently controversial that Disney put the brakes on and completely reversed direction for the sequel. Mm. Um, That, like, its cultural position, I would say that culturally it was hated, whether or not that is, like has basis in individual opinion or not whether that if you were to have like an actual detailed vote would you find that most people hated return of a jedi probably not you're right yeah but culturally the effect has been that it was so disdained if not hated that there was a kickback against it and so that's the kind of that's the context i'm looking at it from personally actually i i've seen the last jedi bits of it right i just fast forwarded through large tracks which were just dire right um I actually quite liked that. When when that was going down, I was like, oh shit, that could be interesting. They could do some some cool and entertaining stuff with that. But of course they didn't. And I know there's a lot of people like that. I suspect that for people who are, shall we say, comfortable in admitting the flaws of Star Wars, that is probably quite a well-liked a bit. But for the fans, for people who are deeply bought into the mythology and kind of distance it provides that's probably a bit that they will have great difficulty with because it basically says we must kill our heroes yeah Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. i would i would argue um you say there that disney um looked at the sort of backlash to last jedi and insisted that they have to change tack for the the final chapter i would argue that my um my theory of uh, a lot of money triumphs overall would probably hold two uh, hold true and last jedi made 1.3 billion dollars or something so i would put it to you that disney would just let jj abrams do whatever the fuck he wanted for the ninth film and whatever the fuck he wanted to do was a big load of old shit um because in many ways it uh, like um rise of skywalker is everything that was wrong with force awakens turned up to 11 force awakens has a lot of like has it has much a lot of the same problems um you know it it's a mess there's the 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 entire thing is just people like delivering exposition while running away from explosions and it it just moves far too quickly and it has too much going on and it's kind of a mess and and at the time i mean i I certainly was prepared to sort of overlook all of that and go well you know it's it's been like however many years since Return of the Jedi, we're being introduced to a new status quo. It's a familiar setting, but it's not familiar at the same time. You've got to introduce that, uh, like introduce us to that status quo, introduce new characters, bring back the old characters, explain everything. So yeah, maybe maybe the only way to do that was to turn in like two and a half hours of confused shit. Um, but then going into Rise of Skywalker, you've 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 had two films. They've set everything up. We know where everything is. And his his base instinct was, what if we tip everything off the board and just set up a new confusing status quo where, like you know, the empire <laughs> the emperor's back and he's got a million star destroyers and they're also Death Stars and and just fucking you know what I mean? I think that's just the only thing J.J. Abrams knows how to do is I is think- like run around setting up tons and tons of stuff that he never pays off. I think you, I think that's fair comment, and I think you're probably more right than I have been in my kind of attribution to Disney. Um, there's a whole bunch, like, so here's the thing. Culturally, there's a whole bunch of arguments about who is responsible for that mess right now. And so I've read certain accounts of it. Um, 
the analysis of AJ Abrams and his kind of approach to things is probably more on the nose than a lot of the blame that's being shifted around right now. Ultimately, I'd kind of say it doesn't really matter. Like, mm. who is responsible for this kickback doesn't matter. And even even their conscious reasons for doing so don't necessarily matter because when you get deep into psychology, you know, behavioralism to an extent tells us that many of the ways people behave doesn't necessarily mesh with why they think they behave in a certain way. People kind of create justifications after the fact um, to try and explain behavior that as many ways is closed off to them. That's a whole discussion in its in mm. itself. Like, was it J.J. Abrams just being J.J. Abrams? Maybe. Possibly. Probably. Was it Disney corporately interfering? Maybe. Possibly. Was it probably? I don't know. Um, it's, it's hard for us to tell without the inside scoop. But if you take a step back and just read the narratives as kind of responses to each other, it's hard to kind of not come to the conclusion that if someone decides they want to just wipe the board and start again after a particular premise, they were rejecting that premise really, really strongly. And the premise of The Last Jedi is, hey, couldn't we kill our heroes and start over in a new way? And it itself backs off for it. And then the, the, the following movie backs off from it even more firmly. Yeah. So, uh, but I yeah. know, man, that's like my reading on it. I, but the thing, the thing is as well, like like I say, um, Star Wars, The Last Jedi made uh, 1.3 <coughs> billion. Um, and so, you know, I don't think Disney would have a problem with continuing with that. But Force Awakens, I think, made 2 billion. So... I think that's even an even stronger argument that they would just let J.J. Abrams do whatever the fuck he wanted at that point. He made them well, $2 billion last time. Just crack at it, son. Well, the um, thing is... I would say that it, it, it does matter to some extent because there is a movement going on um, online for release the Abrams cut, the idea that Disney interfered... Um, and that there's a three-hour version because what we need of what what we all felt coming out of Rise of Skywalker was I could do with another forty minutes of that, um, you know that 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 Disney have interfered and J.J. Abrams' perfect like beautiful vision was ruined, um, and that you know obviously the best way to to do that and it, and and the thing is speaking from like you know the experience of all similar movements like this it's going to lead to people harassing like actors and actresses and producers mm -hmm. and so on then mm. um, you know a kathleen kennedy who produces all of the star wars films now she gets like an an inordinate amount of shit flung at her by angry nerds who were furious because a woman's in charge of the star war and because <laughs> you know she's she's deliberately sabotaged jj abrams the thing the thing that amuses me about um just to, to slightly digress the thing that amuses me about release the the abrams cut is when I first saw that trending on Twitter, I thought, oh, th this is going to be good. Um, you know, because we, we all loved release the Snyder Cut for Justice League. Um, <laughs> and so I thought that uh, the, the, the narrative for the Abrams Cut was going to be that um, there was a version somewhere that lent even... Because I thought it was basically going to be that Rise of Skywalker came out and everyone kind of went, eh... You know, it, it didn't get great reviews. It, it it didn't get great. Like, the audience don't think much of it. It's making a lot of money, but it's not making as much money as... It hasn't made more money than Last Jedi. And to a specific subset of angry nerds who really need Last Jedi to be objectively bad, they needed Rise of Skywalker to come out. And, and, and I mean, it has a part in it where Luke basically turns to the camera and says, I was wrong about everything in the last film. So they needed that film to immediately like just win all the awards and everyone love it. And it made like $3 billion and proved once and for all that Last Jedi was objectively bad because that's been a, a, a central plank of all the criticism of it. 
Like it, they, 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 they know enough to know that like, you know, opinions are subjective. So they have to, but they have to prove that it's bad. So they talk about how the cinematic language is wrong or it's got plot holes or, you know, all this sort of stuff that they've read somewhere. Like they've skimmed the Wikipedia article on cinematography and now they're ready to go. And when Rise of Skywalker didn't immediately come out and, and destroy Last Jedi completely at the box office, they needed a narrative that would explain why that was and they've latched onto the Abrams cut. But then when I actually looked into it, it's literally the same conspiracy theory as the Justice League one. Um, the Justice League one was that Disney, and and this is like some, some hardcore conspiracy theory stuff, Disney hired an assassin to... F- <laughs> Stay with me here to fake, uh, to fake Snyder's daughter's suicide, so that he would step down from in the middle of directing Justice League, and Disney could then send Joss Whedon in as their agent to fuck up the film, because if if uh, Snyder's original cut had made it, then it would have instantly destroyed the MCU, and never again would we have to sub- be subjected to a, a superhero film full of like you know baby shit like colors and jokes everything would <laughs> like, just be brown and violent and um and the, the 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 abrams cut conspiracy is warner brothers apparently bought bad robot which is jj abrams production company mm-hmm. last year and so disney faced with the prospect of jj abrams re- like going over to dc once he'd finished with star wars and producing amazing like dc comics films which would once and for all destroy the the mcu and never again would we have to be subjected to colors and jokes um and so they deliberately made him fuck up rise of skywalker so that warner brothers would go actually he's not the right man for the job so literally disney sabotaged their own blockbuster movie in order to make like (laughs) justice league 2 shit like it's a it's amazing but it makes sense because it's like the, the reading I kind of have of that is the whole ego threat stuff of, well, we can't kill our heroes. It, the, the heroes and their works must be great. It means if they are not working, well, the myth of violence tells me that everything is a conflict and that there must be a villain. There must be malign intent. There must yeah. be a clash of good versus evil. So the evil must be winning out in this. There must be some conspiracy to explain why we don't see that fight publicly. And so, you know, that that's how they, they kind of approach it. It's like, it's sad, but it's, it is the culture of America and of the West more generally, including us here in the UK, just kind of re- regurgitating itself. Yeah. And it's, it's staggering. It's, it's... The worst thing about it, I guess, is you said earlier about how, oh, actually, you know, it's probably just that the first film made more money than the second film, so they probably went with the director of the first film to remake it. But if you follow through the supposed logic of markets, which, you know what, it's it's not foolproof, but for things like um, preference, it can have some expression. Uh, what that means is that people who watched the first film found more to relate to and found it more enjoyable overall than the second and it's like it's almost like a tautology it's like yes they liked the first one more because the first one used nostalgia and was able to appeal to their desire to return to their heroes of old and to kind of restore that kind of feeling of participation in something good and greater that took them away from the horrible present and their participation in a polity that's awful and they didn't like the second one as much because it didn't do that in fact it went in the opposite direction like and so they voted accordingly with their dollars 
that is very much like the thing about these systems is they, they are kind of built together in such a way that there's different expressions of the same thing. I don't think it's necessarily an invalidation. Like individual actors in a drama and in a real life drama end up doing things because of these forces acting on them. And these forces can be expressions of things which are completely opposite to how the individual actors are actually thinking in the moment. Um, and it's it's kind of sad. I, I don't... The thing is, we will never be able to say you can't look at this from a kind of materialist scientific perspective and reduce it. Like, if you boil down Star Wars, we see the following things are in the base of it, which chemically we can induce to produce this outcome. You can't take apart the motivation of Disney as a monolith because it's many, many different people. And mm. when you have collections of people together, individual... Like, I don't, I don't know how you guys feel, but the Great Man of History narrative is kind of rubbish. It's not about single individuals making decisions. It's about mm -hmm. the cultural mm -hmm. movements acting upon the institutions in a society to induce behavior in individuals. So yeah, I don't I, know when we're never going to have a, an agreement on this. I would, I would, I would agree with that. He, he says nodding along, not fully aware of what the great man of history narrative is. But yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Um, like the, as a kind of short version of it, um, every story that you're aware of is basically you know it's a couple of actors it's a couple of great people and they make all the change yeah and, yeah i mean i think i like, get the gist it's just yeah you, you know, can like, tie like winston churchill is, yeah, we, is an effect of great man yeah. of history because he he won the war like that that was all him like that kind of thing that kind of and narratives do tie into that a lot because a lot of narratives are about one specific character does so much um and they change everything um yeah, I mean, we all we all know that it was Churchill who single handedly won the war. Whenever anyone says that, I always picture him stood on the, the stood on a beach somewhere with his shirt off and a four pack of lager, just like <laughs> swearing at the Germans, and they all decide, you know what, we'll just fucking leave it. We will fight them on the beaches, indeed. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> yeah so anyway, um, anyway, <laughs> should should we should we completely undermine all of the um, intellectual stuff we've said up to now by having an argument about which is the best Star War? Uh, the best Star War is Rogue One because it's a, a war film and is actually a Star War. Mm, I would say Last Jedi. I really, really liked everything about that, and even even the the bit on the casino planet grows on me every time I see it. <laughs> because it's it, it people complain they shouldn't have put that in but it's the, it's basically the the most important part of the film because the message there is eat the rich yeah <laughs> and like you know the, they have like well, well the ch the chase is a bit george lucas where they're riding the sort of like big dog horses through the town but yeah. at the same time they vandalize the shit out of a lot of rich people's property which is you know it's praxis <laughs> isn't it Man, you guys, I don't even know what kind of brain poisoning you've got going on. It very clearly, it very clearly is The Empire Strikes Back. I'll be honest, after hearing about the release, the, the Abrams cut conspiracy and the Snyder cut stuff, I'm glad that all I was really able to do when really putting my mind to it was bring up a kind of lukewarm blue label take on this. <laughs> so I don't feel so bad now about what I've done here. <laughs> Man, like, yeah... You know what? Actually, fuck it. Fuck it. Let's do a little bit of our own narrative crafting. Clearly, the Abrams cut is the, it's the best Star Wars movie. It's the best Star Wars movie because we'll never actually see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, the thing is, Rise of Skywalker, as, as disappointing as it is, it even fails at the most, at the one thing you would expect. When you hear J.J. Abrams producing the end to this series, he's doing the finale, 
the one thing you would expect is that it was going to be like just you were going to come away thinking well that did not live up to the fucking like promise that it had it could have done um and it, it even it isn't even the star wars film that that fails to live up to its promise most because that would mm. be solo where's my where's my release the lord and miller cut hashtag that's what i want to know jj <laughs> abrams has a good talent for um being involved with things at the start but yeah. he shouldn't be allowed to finish them like well lost- i mean he was for he was example, saying that he was or, saying that on the press tour for Rise of Skywalker, and you knew you were in for a treat then when he's going, oh, and people, you know, I'm not, usually, I'm not really the first choice of someone to finish a story. It's like fucking hell, JJ. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't get us all, don't get us too excited there. I love the guy. Who is it who plays? Um, fuck, like you can tell how invested I am in the new movies, but in fact, I'm struggling <laughs> with this. The stormtrooper character from the first uh, one who carries through the series, John Boyega. Um, yeah, you him talking about like they asked him, "Are you going to appear in any of the Disney Plus kind of?" Or they asked him, "Are you going to be in future Star Wars?" And he's like, "I'm not going to be Disney Plus, no way." And it's like, holy shit, that guy has no fucks left to give. Yeah, he's absolutely happy to take the money and run. I mean, yeah, but like, he's nothing next to Oscar Isaac. Like he's he's literally I think every single stop on the press tour for Rise of Skywalker he's literally complained that Disney are fucking cowards for not letting them have a gay kiss in the film. Like fair enough, actually you know what? Fair enough. Two minutes on this, they made a big thing about how oh you know there's gonna it's gonna appeal to LGBT and all the rest of it, and then it's like a yeah. couple of seconds cut in the background which are easily excised by the Chinese. Yeah, censors. it's it's yeah. that that woman from Last Jedi kissing another woman who who doesn't even have the he wasn't even in the previous film, so I don't. Think, I, I can't tell you the name of the character. Ellie Lesbiano. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a lucas name. Yeah. Oh, and a partner. You know, a partner is Colombian Grebe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Right. Okay. Sorry. You're making me go falsetto. I'm finding that so funny. Um. It's it, like this is definitely one of the messiest episodes I think we've ever put together. But by God, uh, I think it's because commentary ultimately reflects its topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, if this has been a mess, just remember that we were talking about the rise of Skywalker. Yeah, it's it's thematically on brand for that film. <laughs> we should have come up with Lucas names for ourselves at the start of this. Oh, we should have as well. Damn. Well, I, I think you can guess what mine's gonna fucking be. Barlow Ken. <laughs> Colombian Grebe. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah, Fred, I think we'll I think we'll tie that one off there then folks. Um so that like I say, this has been a little foray into some cultural analysis and you know, be it good faith or bad faith, um that's what it's an attempt to be. Um we will be continuing this line of episode throughout the year so look forward to more as and when they come up uh, might not just be film maybe books could be anything else let's just wait and see what happens um might be smoky and the bandit could be could be <laughs> don't hold out hope but it could be so yeah um we'll leave it there and we will see you all um with our next episode which will probably be a news one yeah i would imagine Well, thank you, David, and maybe, like Lucas, you can save it in the edit. (laughs) (laughs) Don't hold it, hope. Right, cheerio. Bye. Bye.